everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we've operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have George Gascone, the former district attorney for San Francisco. He resigned in October and then he moved to Los Angeles where he announced he would run for DA in L.A. against incumbent Jackie Lacey. Welcome to the show, George. Thank you, David. Good morning. How are you? So I think the big question that I've had in all of this is to understand why all the moves, and in particular, uh, the decision to run in L.A. after stepping down in San Francisco. Yeah, so uh, I... You know, I don't know whether you're aware of this, but I, you know, I spent most of my life here. I grew up in L.A., uh, raised a family here. Uh, I was with the LAPD for two decades, and then I was recruited uh, to become a chief of police in Mesa, Arizona. I went there for about three years, and when I was there, I got embroiled in some big uh, fights, basically, with Joe Arpaio, who was the uh, sheriff of Maricopa County at the time. He was a guy that was making... Uh, trying to be noticeable by his anti-immigration uh, posture. He was racially profiling, profiling uh, immigrants. He was, uh, uh, you know, arresting people, sometimes U.S. citizens or legal residents, uh, if they couldn't prove uh, that they were, uh, you know, lawfully in the U.S. And we uh, we got embroiled in some, in some significant uh, disputes over his process. And uh, that led eventually for me to go to Congress to provide testimony against our pile. When I did that, upon the completion of providing that testimony, uh, you know, the political heat on the city and the city uh, uh, government was very, very strong, uh, especially from anti-immigrant groups uh, that were supporters of our pile. In those days, our pile was polling you know, consistently over 80%. He had been elected four times to sheriff. So he was a very popular guy in a community that is very conservative, was very anti-immigrant. Um, so I was basically asked to leave Mesa. And when I did, uh, then Mayor uh, Newsom, now Governor uh, Newsom, recruited me. I became the chief of police in San Francisco. And then when Kamala Harris became the attorney general, uh, I first was appointed to district attorney by Newsom, and then I run twice. Uh, I got elected twice. So I was a DA in San Francisco for uh, almost nine years. One year as appointed and, and, and two four-year terms, uh, and I was just shy of a couple of months to finish my second term. Uh, 
about a year prior to that, uh, my mother and my kids lived here, my grandkids. My mother was having uh, severe health problems, and they were deteriorating, and I have no siblings. And we were, you know, concerned about my being so far away from the house, uh, from her home. And I uh, made, you know, made a family decision that I was moving back home. Uh, when I announced that I was not going to run for a third term, and by the way, there is no, there are no term limits for DAs in San Francisco, so not only could I have run, I would have been, you know, more than likely reelected, but decided that I was uh, going to come back home. When I announced that I was coming back home, uh, I started getting calls from people here and said, "Hey, you know, we're really unhappy with the uh, the state of affairs with the uh, DA's office in LA. Um, you know, the people in LA County, uh, for instance, voted against the death penalty twice. Uh, she continues to the death penalty." Uh, you know, people here are very unhappy about the way she handles juvenile justice. She continues to uh, prosecute juveniles as adults and send them to adult prison. Um, people are very unhappy about her uh, the way she handles the mentally ill. You know, she talks about having a mental health unit, and then you come to find out that the mental health unit is composed of one attorney with no experience in mental health in a county of ten and a half million people, and then that her deputy DAs are continuously objecting to mental health diversion in the courts and they're being told to object. So it's, it's, it's a fraud. So, you know, LA County uh, imprisons people, the prison commitments are four times the rate that San Francisco had, yet uh, violent crime in San Francisco had come down further than LA County. So it questions the, the, the utility of incarcerating that many people. You know, I could go on and on and on. And, you know, frankly, I, uh, I'm passionate about the work. I'm passionate about criminal justice reform and the intersection between reform and safety because I think you can do both. I think you can have a very safe community that is also very humane. And when the, uh, uh, you know, uh, people, uh, you know, some that I knew, some that I didn't know, they just simply knew about my work, uh, kept asking. And the more that my wife and I looked at this, uh, we decided it was the right thing for us to do. Uh, I was coming back to my community anyway, and uh, and that really was what led to eventually uh, my uh, you know declaring to run. So, um, what do you feel were um, your successes in San Francisco? Well, you know, I uh, I think there were many, and 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 first of all, I, I want to say that you know while. I consider to be a part of a team. You know, the successes were really uh, teamwork. I mean, not any one person is able to move this massive systems by themselves. Um, but you know, we did a bunch of things. When I was uh, when I became DA, uh, San Francisco County uh, had a jail that was full every day, um, and we were prosecuting about 65% of our cases were you know low-level drug offenses, uh, mostly people of color. Uh, we were able to turn that around and, and really focus on violent crime. And, you know, and, and I, I believe that that was a major contributor to the reduction in violence. But more importantly, what it did, too, uh, we became, uh, you know, the only urban jail in the state uh, that consistently was running, uh, you know, 30 percent vacancy, sometimes even more, um, when, you know, the, the norm is for county jails to be full all the time, especially in the urban centers in L.A. County. Is a perfect example where you know the jail is always full. In fact, people in LA County usually do not serve more than 10% of their sentence, and the reason for that is because the sheriff doesn't have enough space, so he has to release people. 
to the Yelter Fool, uh, you know, people that shouldn't be there. There was a study that just came out recently that uh, Rand Corporation did an analysis and said about 30% of the people in L.A. County Jail uh, should be diverted into mental health services and they should not be in the county jail. So, you know, you can see uh, the problems, the systemic problems that are there that are, you know, a lot of them are being driven by other forces, but, you know, a big part of it is the, the way the DA conducts their business. Uh, so I consider my my approach to the work and the fact that we were able to reduce prison and incarceration uh, commitments uh, to high levels of success. I also, uh, I participated and, you know, I was one of the spokesperson for reform for three strikes in 2012. It was a statewide initiative that passed overwhelmingly and, and provided a, a more thoughtful, more humane approach to three strikes. Um, you know, I, I can also tell you my failures. I also work with the ACLU. We're campaigning about trying to abolish the death penalty in 2012, and that unfortunately failed by a very small margin, but it failed. Uh, then in 2014, uh, you know, we were looking at addressing the inequities of uh, drug policy and drug legislation, where uh, if you were in possession of crack cocaine, uh, it was automatically a felony, regardless of the quantity. If you were in possession of powder cocaine, um, it was a it could be a misdemeanor or a felony, and, and depending on your wealth and your uh, <laughs> the color of your skin. Uh, if you got caught with white powder cocaine, you probably got a misdemeanor uh, filing. And we knew, you know, the inequity there is that, you know, crack cocaine is mostly used by people of color, by poor people, and our prisons were full of people like that. And that was really one of the major drivers behind Prop 47. And we did Prop 47 to, you know, level the, the playing field, number one, but more importantly, to de-emphasize uh, and lower the criminal consequences of possession of drugs for personal use uh, to bring it to a more humane level. That, I consider that a major accomplishment. That was one of the biggest drivers of uh, reduction of incarceration. And uh, in my county, uh, and that was, you know, the study by uh, a, a researching group came in, they actually attributed the biggest reduction in uh, African-American incarceration in the state, but also in my county as a result of Prop 47. Um, so I consider that a success. Uh, we worked really hard to eliminate life without the possibility of parole for juveniles, which I think is inhumane. In fact, the United Nations has said that that is inhumane, and yet, you know, we still have life without the possibility of parole for juveniles. Um, you know, I I never thought the death penalty uh, while I was DA for nearly nine years, and I'm very proud of that. Uh, I think the death penalty is broken in many ways, uh, and I cannot uh, either ethically or morally uh, support, uh, you know, uh, continuing to have the death penalty. Um, you know, we did a lot of work around restorative justice with juveniles. Uh, we uh, created a program called Make It Right that, uh, did, uh, you know, took, uh, more serious juvenile offenses, put them in a restorative justice model similar to the, what, the New Zealand conf uh, conferencing model. Um, and what we found there is that when we put kids in the restorative justice model, uh, the recidivism rate was about 12%, whereas the recidivism rate when they go through the traditional juvenile court is about 40%. At the same time, you know, we created a crime strategies unit where we use data uh, to identify prolific offenders and work with law enforcement to go after 
uh, theft rings and fencing operations and uh, other uh, criminal enterprises and do that very successfully, which I attribute uh, a lot of our crime reductions to that. And in fact, when the uh, Bill Scott was a assistant, I'm sorry, was the deputy chief in LA, who became the chief of police in San Francisco in the last two years, uh, you know, we went through an epidemic of increasing car break-ins, and we had uh, for about five years, we had about 81,000 car break-ins and 13 arrests in that, you know, that caused the epidemic. Uh, and when Bill came in, he we were able to work together and started going after organized theft ranks. And now we, for two years in a row, uh, car break-ins in San Francisco have gone down. Uh, interestingly enough, they're going up in L.A. County now. It's a, the pressure mounted in San Francisco, those... Uh, Gangs that were doing car uh, break-ins in San Francisco and the Bay Area have sort of come towards uh, L.A. County where they're not getting the attention that uh, they should have. So these are things that I'm I'm, I'm very proud of because they, I believe it's, it's striking a, a thoughtful and humane balance uh, between keeping our community safe and not, and not necessarily criminalizing and over-incarcerating uh, communities that at the, in the long run actually create a life uh, a, a more unsafe condition for all of us. Um, but again, you know, I, I was part of a team. You know, I had a tremendous uh, group of uh, lawyers and investigators, and, you know, we had great people in our police department that work with us, and, and I'm very proud of that work. Where do you think you fell short in terms of implementing reforms within the San Francisco DA's office? Yeah, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting thing that I'm glad that you asked that because I, I often tell people that I learn as much as from my failures as I do from my successes. And I think, you know, what I would consider a shortcoming was um, I fought really hard. In fact, I was the first elected official to come out publicly against building a new jail in San Francisco uh, in 2016. Uh, the mayor and the sheriff, and, and, and in the early stages, everybody wanted to build a new jail, and they were going to build a mental health jail, quote-unquote. And I was talking to experts in mental health and incarceration, and, and, and resoundingly, you know, said the science doesn't support the term mental health jail. It's just, you know, people that are mentally ill generally uh, do not do better in a, in a custody setting. They tend to do worse. They become aggressive. They get abused by others. Uh, they get into fights with other inmates. They get into fights with, uh, uh, you know, custodial personnel. They end up being isolated. When they get isolated, their 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 conditions worsen. And because most of the people that go to jail for mental health slash quality of life offenses end up being released very quickly, all that happens you cycle them in and out. And they're coming back out on the street, and sometimes they're coming in in worse shape than when they went in. Uh, you know, often they become more violent. Uh, they cost a lot of money in terms of emergency room uh, and emergency services visits. They harm other people. They harm themselves. So I fought very aggressively and eventually got a consensus that we did not need to build a new jail. Um, interestingly enough, in this process, too, uh, to give you some backdrop, as I mentioned earlier, we have been able to lower the jail population in our county, but in the low end by about 30%, 28%. I was never able to convince the Board of Supervisors to start shifting, uh, and the mayor, to start shifting funding away from the Sheriff's Department and put it into mental health services. And I consider that that was a, uh, you know, looking back, I, I, I should have been more uh, effective 
perhaps in a way that I lobby uh, the Board of Supervisors and the mayor to shift funding. And, and you know, and the problem here, by the way, the dynamics are always, uh, you know, uh, bureaucratic organizations uh, uh, fight very hard for the survival. And, you know, obviously, uh, you know, even though the sheriff department general work has been lower significantly, especially in a place like San Francisco, where they do not patrol the streets, they only do custody uh, and building security. Um, but yeah, the, their custody responsibilities have been lowered significantly, but they kept their staffing levels at the same, at the same level that when they had, uh, a much higher number of people inside the jails. And, you know, a lot of games that start being played with the way you classify people. If you classify them as more dangerous, then you need a higher racial deputies to, to inmates. So it, it, there's a whole bunch of gamesmanship that goes on when an organization starts engaging and, you know, uh, you know, surviving and, and maintaining what they need or what they, you know, the status that they had. So one of the things that are really incumbent, you know, for us in LA County is really how do we, how do we start taking, you know, as we lower the footprint in the criminal justice system. And, and by the way, that should be across the board, just the, the county jails, but, you know, DAs and, and police and everybody else. As you start lowering the footprint, how do we start shifting that money then? into social services, education, mental health services, because that really should be the ultimate goal. You know, the, the essence of safety in a community is not the presence of law enforcement, but it's the absence of crime in, in, in spite of a reduction in law enforcement resources. Um, what are your biggest concerns about the current DA in L.A.? Well, I have many, but I, I can tell you that for me, the probably the biggest is the, the, the extent of the the incarceration incarceration rate, the, the, the punitive approach to the work, um, they, they criminalize people. They they take people sometimes to commit very low level offenses. They suck them into the system, and once you're in the system, you have a tendency to not be able to get out of it. So, I think you know, uh, and I know that I, I said this, and people question me sometimes. But I think you know the biggest problem that the LA County DA's office has—they have lost their their ability to distinguish the dangerous from the nuisance. Uh, and you know, sometimes nuisance makes us angry, and I get that. Uh, but when you start treating nuisance as danger, you equate in what happens eventually it becomes danger. Uh, and and I think that we. Uh, you know, we need to turn that around. And, and frankly, you know, we keep hearing this, right? I mean, this this new RAMP study that just said, you know, 30% of the people in county jails should not be there. It should be diverted into mental health services. My goodness, those are, those are thousands of human beings every year. And what doesn't get mentioned in that study is that those folks actually, by being given the wrong intervention and being put in a custody setting, their likelihood of harming others and the likelihood of harming themselves and committing other crimes increases exponentially. You know, our jails and prisons are not good places. There are places where people get further traumatized. There are places where people increase their criminogenic uh, tendencies because that's where they're at. That's the environment they're in, right? So we as a society need to start realizing that 
actually lowering incarceration supports public safety. It doesn't increase it because much like when you increase the number of people that go to a university, you're likely to have people that are able to pay more taxes and less likely to be committing crimes. Uh, the, 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 the reverse effect is when you increase the number of people going to jails and prisons, you're going to increase the number of people that are not going to pay taxes and people that are going to commit crimes and have all kinds of other problems, which in turn is, a, is, is harmful both economically, socially, and, and safety-wise to all of us, including the people that are being incarcerated. So the word decarceration has kind of become a new buzzword in the reform uh, community. Uh, what does that word mean to you, and, and how are you going to operationalize it? Well, I mean, we're going to offer, first of all, let me, let me take the second part of it, and I'll take the first one. Uh, the way that I'm going to op- uh, put into operation the same way that I did in San Francisco, right? We start, number one, we start uh, uh, creating greater opportunities for diversion, both pre-trial and, and post-trial diversion, um, you know. So that's going to reduce the number of people uh, that are going to be incarcerated. The second thing that you do is you lower the sense the, the sentences that you seek, you know, instead of there are many times where, you know, the intervention, if you can, if you can cure the problem by having a, a, a one year sentence in jail or two year sentence in prison, you should not be seeking 10. Right. And that starts to lower the level of incarceration. One of the things that I will be doing actually is reducing the use of enhancements, you know, uh, about three years ago, we started getting really curious about the, the impact of a, a status enhancement uh, in our ca- incarceration rates. And uh, I asked uh, some researchers to come in. And initially, I asked them if they could do a statewide analysis. Uh, they were unable to because all the DAs that we, we tried to get to operate, nobody wanted to share the data. So it became only San Francisco data, uh, which, given that we already had lower incarceration so much, is probably not a full picture in terms of the, the, the enhancements for all in other counties are even more impactful than they are in San Francisco. But nevertheless, uh, after about a year and a half cleaning up the data, looking at it, what, you know, there were uh, some interesting conclusions that came out that you would say now, well, you know, in retrospect, it's common sense, but, you know, it isn't as obvious until you put it on, on a piece of paper and you lay it on a spreadsheet. And, and the bottom line is that we saw that status enhancements like, you know, gangs and, uh, you know, possession of a gun with a prior felony conviction, uh, you know, strikes, all those things were just doubling, tripling, and quadrupling the base sentence in the case. So you had a person that maybe was committed, you know, the base offense was a, uh, let's say it was a residential burglary, uh, but, you know, if uh, they were carrying a gun, maybe when they had that, you know, they had a prior felony conviction, or maybe they were, they, they were in cow gangs. Uh, so we're a gang member, you start adding all those enhancements and all of a sudden you take the base sentence and you multiply that by two or sometimes threefold. Uh, that drives the level of incarceration. And you have to ask yourself, are those, you know, those very lengthy sentences, do they help anything? You know, we, we have prisons that are full of people that are in the 70s and 80s. They, they're no longer a danger to anyone. They have been in custody for decades. Um, but, you know, L.A. County Sheriff continues to fight every parole release, um, regardless of whether a person is dangerous or not. You know, in fact, they even fight some of the county releases. They fought some of our San Francisco county releases when we were actually agreeing to the release. So 
that is what's going to lower incarceration, and and we're definitely prepared to do that. And I have done that, right? So it's not like a, it's not an aspirational goal. It's like this is something that I've done for the last eight plus years. Uh, now, what does the term decarceration mean? Uh, look, I mean, it just means that you want to reduce the number of people in jail and prison. Very simple. Um, why is bail reform proven to be so difficult to achieve? Yeah, you know, I mean, the, the, the problem with bail reform is that, the, you know, like, like, like almost anything else in the criminal justice system, you develop constituencies, right, uh, for different practices that have been in place for years. Uh, when it comes to money bail, you have whole industries uh, that is, you know, people make their livelihood. They have family businesses. You have big insurance companies that are making millions of dollars every year uh, in, in the money bail system. And, you know, we have a tradition, right? You look at the state constitution, uh, you know, there was a, uh, it's in the constitution, the right to bail. And unfortunately, the right to bail, when it was created in the state uh, constitution, it was really, uh, you know, it was really derived from the British system, um, which, you know, the, 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 the bail system was actually a family. You know, most people, uh, you know, you would have a family member or you had the person put some bond, you know, the, the secure white property usually uh, to, uh, you know, to guarantee that they were going to show up for, for the hearing or the court or the legal process. Um, but what has occurred after several um, centuries, you know, because this is a system that really goes back way back to uh, 11, 1200, uh, you know, common law in, in, in Britain. Um, is you know became an industry, right? I mean, they, but you know, this really became an industry in the 19th century, uh, where you started in the 20th century, actually, not 19th, but the 20th century, um, where you had insurance companies that started to get into the business of, uh, you know, putting these bonds, right? There were percentage of the uh, the money that was being required. Increasingly, the system became more and more punitive in the way that they, they added the uh, dollar amount. Uh, and, and, you know, this insurance companies then, you know, became a major profit point. So you have that interest there that is huge and has a lot of money and they lobby. And then you have uh, the criminal justice system. You know, people, people generally don't like change, right? Human beings, as human beings, we feel comfortable doing the things that we've always done. So what we have is a system that most of the, uh, whether you're talking about police officers or you're talking about judges or, or prosecutors, they have become very comfortable that the way that you handle, uh, you know, whether you let somebody be released or not is by, by putting a, a dollar amount to their freedom uh, without any consideration that there's no, uh, there's absolutely no connection between your ability to pay bail uh, or to post bail, and whether you're going to be dangerous or not, right? I mean, so what the what the system has evolved is in the system where you have poor people that are consistently having to stay in custody because they cannot afford their bail, or maybe a, a family member, a grandma comes in and puts a second trustee on their home, uh, you know, in order to get the 10% bail, and then when they cannot pay the bail, uh, grandma loses a home. Or, you know, or even if they do pay the bail, you know, the bond is gone. So, you know, you have a case, for instance, and this is very, very common, especially in L.A. County. Uh, you know, there will be police making arrests. Uh, the DA, uh, you know, the person 
post bail, they pay their 10% bonds. So let's say that they get a $50,000 or $100,000 bail. So they post a bond of five or $10,000. And then the DA uh, doesn't file the case, right? The person gets released uh, on bail. That money's gone. That person never gets to see that money again. So you, you even have a system where you're punishing people without any due process because the DA decides not to file the case because maybe it was an illegal arrest or there was not enough evidence or they actually find that the person who was arrested did not commit the crime that was alleged. But the bail money that they posted is gone, right? So you have all this complexities of a system that is incredibly unfair, very punitive, very focused on, on harming poor people but you have all this money interest and you have law enforcement. And when I say law enforcement, I'm talking about, you know, VAs as well. They have been wedded to the system. And all of a sudden, there's a conversation that's been going on. And by the way, I was the first DA in the state back in 2012 to say, we got to get rid of money bail uh, because it's not, it has nothing to do with dangerousness. In fact, we were able to look at national studies that show that people on bail, on, on, on money bail, are more likely to commit other offenses uh, that, that people that get released under, you know, other systems where, you know, dangerousness is evaluated and they get released or not based on that. Um, and so what happened is that as we start pushing back and you got the, 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 the industry, then there was a search for other alternatives. And, you know, we tried to look to technology, you know, to create maybe algorithms that can measure uh, a person's uh, level of dangerousness based on factors and that has been under assault as well because we recognize um, that even under best intentions sometimes the algorithms are based on on garbage you know sort of garbage in garbage out meaning that you know people poor people get more criminalized than the rest of us you know so things that maybe other parts of the community that would never be arrested for they get arrested those become factors that the algorithm kicks up the level of dangerousness for the person. So now you have, you may not have money bail, but now you have a, an algorithm that says, well, this person is dangerous, even when they may not necessarily be any more dangerous than the person next to them that has never been arrested. So we need to continue to evolve in this process. The, the bottom line is money is not the answer. The question becomes, if money is not the answer, how do we get to a place that we can, uh, with some level of certainty, uh, be able to predict uh, whether a person is going to be dangerous or not? And that gets very complicated because predicting human behavior, um, while there are possibilities, and certainly in marketing, there's a lot of data that shows that you can do that to a great extent. Uh, we're not marketing, right? We're dealing with people's freedom, and we're dealing with a system that is sort of broken on one end, uh, because unfortunately, the system has focused so aggressively for generations on, on poor people, black people. So if you create an algorithm that is solely based on determining dangerousness on, on, on your prior criminal record, uh, that's going to be a problem, right? Because that automatically is going to actually not reduce incarceration or pretrial incarceration, but it could have actually the opposite result, that it will increase it. So it's an area that's in flux, an area that, that continues to need to be addressed. Uh, but what is what I have complete, complete certainty is that going back to money bill or having money bill is not the answer. The answer is how do we get to a place 
uh, that we do a better job. You know, it's a, it's a, it's an evidentiary hearing before you detain somebody. Uh, if we do evidentiary hearings in all those detentions, you know, what are the level of resources that will be needed for that? Uh, so, you know, these are all things that are on the table that need to be discussed, and, and, and it may be community by community in some areas. Um, but getting rid of money bill, to me, is a no-brainer. And then talk about police accountability. Yeah. This is, you know, again, this is one of those areas that gets the, you know, becomes a, the 500-pound gorilla in the room, right? Uh, you have uh, police and, and certainly police unions uh, that feel very strongly that uh, any any questioning of their their authority or, or, or the level of force is a is an assault on their in their on their safety and a potential increase in creating dangerousness and, and unfortunately uh, that's not always the case on the other end of the spectrum you got the, the reality is that we we have to be honest with each other and we have to look at the origins of you know the development of policing in this country and you have to go back to the slavery times right uh and i know people don't like you know you start talking about this stuff and uh and people get very very uncomfortable but you know policing in this country especially in the south uh was really uh created to protect uh, slave owners and to make sure that you know slaves were kept in their place, quote unquote. And then after the Civil War, they continued to be used as a tool uh, to enforce, um, you know, Jim Crow laws. And, and so you have a history on this country that is full of um, discrimination, especially against black people. And then, you know, as new generations of immigrants came in, then brown people, <laughs> got you know got discriminated as well and certainly at some point irish and italians but you know those people were able to integrate themselves more quickly uh because they they have you know generally physically they look more like uh like the folks that were here before whereas you know when you're black or brown you have a tendency just your your physical appearance you know you you, don't, you cannot hide from that um so so that level of enculturation of, of racism and, and, and bias uh, has been part of policing and been part of our entire social system, but, you know, certainly impacts policing. And and what you see is you see that generally when you see this really horrendous cases of uh, police abuse of their authority and force, most of the times uh, it's visited upon African-Americans in this country. And now with the increased availability of videos and, uh, you know, police body-worn cameras and all this stuff, we're now seeing what, you know, a lot of folks in the black community have been saying for, for generations, uh, and, and, you know, we sometimes didn't necessarily always believe it, and now you're seeing it in your, you know, you can put it on your phone or you can put it on your TV, and you're seeing the, the, the unnecessary use of force. What makes it really hard into all this is because the majority of police officers um, do their job and they do it extremely well and, and then they're very complex and difficult conditions but all it takes is a few bad incidents and now we get into a videotape and they always by the way are impacting uh, you know African Americans or you also look 
at the treatment that African-Americans get by law enforcement. I mean, you look at the, the, the data, for instance, just published by the state recently uh, concerning racial profiling, where, you know, not only are African-Americans stopped by police at disproportionate numbers uh, when compared to their, you know, their, their, their racial population, but more, more importantly, we see that the the likelihood of a police officer finding contraband, and by that I mean some illegal thing, during the search of a person, when they're dealing with African Americans, the ratio is significantly lower than when it is with white people, which what that translates into for those that may say, well, what does that mean? Well, what that means is that police are very careful and they're more thoughtful and they're more likely to follow uh, all the steps uh, when they're searching a white person. So by the time they search a white person, they have a high degree of probability that they're going to find something like a gun or narcotics or some contraband. Whereas when they're dealing with an African-American, they're just doing it as a matter of, uh, you know, uh, you know, part for the course whether they have probable cause or not, or whether they needed to or not. They're just basically going on a fishing expedition. And what that does is it continues to feed the divide, it feeds the anger and the separation between law enforcement and, and especially communities of color in the African-American community. And then you keep adding more, you know, more insult to injury. You have, for instance, the incident just happened uh, with the LAPD Metro Division, where they were, uh, you know, allegedly, but it looks like, you know, certainly the police department seems to be believing there's, there's certainly some level of credibility to the complaints, and they have suspended everybody. That uh, you know, officers were placing uh, young brown kids in the in the uh, California gang files, which basically starts a whole host of other consequences, including you know, kicking out the, the potential for status enhancements that may increase your incarceration at a later date, and they were falsifying these documents, right? Again, you have all the things that come, you know, they, they, they pile on, and then you have a use of force, which is more likely to occur with a person of color than it is with a white person. And that's why you have so much tension, and that's why it's so important that we develop a system where Police use of force is is limited to that force that is absolutely the minimum force and the minimum necessary force at the time, and the law is not there yet, right? The law still gives too much uh, too much uh, uh, space for police use of force, which when you compound that level of broader discretion that is probably necessary to keep the police or anybody else safe with the history of racism and other practices that continue to be, um, you know, that continue to be right in our face every day, you just create this untenable situation. And that's why it's, it's, it's imperative, both for police and for our community and for the well-being of our society that we, that we rein in and that we put greater controls on police use of force. And by the way, data that often police doesn't like to look at uh, especially in some departments, some communities. Actually, when police departments have very strict use of force policies, officer injuries go down. Uh, workers come claimed by officers go down significantly at the same time that obviously 
community injuries go down too. So it's a win-win. We know that actually less force by police actually it's good for everybody. It's good for the police. It's good for the community, and obviously, it's good for 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 the social well-being of our entire community. So, one last question: um, Your successor, Chase Bodine, just got sworn in last night in San Francisco. What do you think of him, and what challenges do you think he has ahead of him? Yeah, well, look. I mean, first of all, I have a lot of respect for Chase. I I supported. Uh, his candidacy because I believe he was a, he was the right person. I looked at the field, uh, and I also, you know, I mean, to some level, uh, I have a great deal of pride in the work that I did, and I wanted to have somebody that came in that, you know, would take it to the next level because I never expect people just to stay static, but I didn't want to have somebody that come in and start breaking everything down, which, uh, you know, the other three people that were running would have done. Uh, in fact, you know, even for a short period of time when, uh, you know, Susie Loftus came in appointed by the mayor, even though she was only going to be the DA for a couple of weeks, basically at that point, uh, she started to undo some of our diversion programs that we had that were database, um, data driven. Uh, they were not just one to diversion, but they were diversion that we had the, the scientific evidence to show that that was a better way to go. So I was not going to support somebody who was going to come in and do wholesale uh, destruction of, of, of the work that had taken so many people so much hard work to, to get done in eight years. Uh, and Chesa was the person that I believe not only he wouldn't do that, but he would actually build up a money, which is what should happen. You know, I'm not, as, again, don't expect anything to be static, but you don't want to go back. You want to move forward. And I believe that Chesa would do that. Uh, you know, he's going to have difficulties because the police had already decided, they decided during the election on a very underhanded way to attack them, much like they attacked me, unfortunately. And I'm talking about the, the police union, not not the officer in the street. Um, and they have already decided that, you know, he's going to be unfair, and that he cannot do the job. So obviously that creates uh, tension where tension shouldn't be. Uh, you know, the public doesn't pay uh, their government to be fighting with one another. They probably pay the government to function and get the work done. And I would hope that the... Uh, police leadership in San Francisco, um, you know, draw some strict lines and, and, and goes to work. And, and, you know, hopefully I think Chase will do the same thing and everybody. Just because you have differences sometimes, it doesn't mean that you don't get to work together. The other thing that I think it's fundamentally central to the work of district attorneys, and it's one that often DAs miss, and in fact the DA here in L.A. County really misses that point, the DA is not there to be the friend of the police. The DA is there to be a partner to work with the police, but the DA is the gatekeeper for good government. And the gatekeeper for good government means that you are the one that you get paid to protect the public from bad government interventions. And that includes the police as well as anybody else in government, right? Your job as a district attorney is to protect the community from bad government. When you have bad policing practices, that's bad government. And you don't get paid to cover it up or to enhance it or to look the other way. You get paid to confront it. And I think that often the A's have this, you know, the A's in this country have built up this belief that they, they you know, they're part of the police team and they're part, they, everybody has to get along. And when you have bad behavior, you just kind of look the other way or that's not what the job is. The job is to make sure that people are playing by the rules. 
Well, I want to thank you for being on our show. That's all the time we have. Well, David, my pleasure. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Thank you. That was George Gascone, the DA candidate in Los Angeles. He's taking on Jackie Lacey. And uh, he stepped down from the DA's office in San Francisco. He explained why he did that. Um, And it should be a very interesting election. This has been Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Join us again soon for more tales from Everyday Injustice. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mousequake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.